Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Gracious Father, as we open up your word, we pray that you would speak to us in it, We pray that we would listen. We pray that where the tree of anger finds root in our hearts, you would give us the grace to root it out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can blame social media. You can blame our political polarization. You can blame the pandemic. Blame whatever you want, but in the times that we live in, reading a text like this, it's impossible to read Jesus' words and not feel that what he's addressing is the sins of the angry people all around us. It's hard not to read these words with a little bit of excitement that the angry people are going to get their comeuppance. The angry people, of course, who are angry about different things that we're angry about because our anger is always justified. Jesus is telling us, or so we tell ourselves, that the answer, the gospel remedy for our times is to lower the temperature on the discourse, for everyone to just back off a little bit on their rage. That's what we hear, unless, of course, you're an extremely angry person, in which case you read these words and you hear, wait a second, it sounds like being angry at someone is the same as murdering them. And if that's the case, maybe I should just murder the people I'm angry at. So there's a couple of things right up front that I want to clarify. Let's start by making this clear. Jesus here is not saying that being mad at someone is just as bad, is equally bad as murdering someone. He's not drawing some kind of moral equivalence, saying that being angry and murdering are the same thing and carry with them the same kind of connotation of evil or wrongdoing. He's not saying that there's no difference between you rage posting on Facebook and people committing genocide, that in the eyes of God, God looks, he's like, I can't even tell the difference. That is not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, The point that Jesus is making actually depends on our being able to distinguish between the two. We need to be able to see 
that there's a big difference between murdering someone and just being angry at them if we're going to understand what it is that Jesus is actually teaching here. Because what Jesus is actually saying is it's not just the extreme transgressions that lead to judgment and condemnation, it's the little ones too. It's not just the murder, it's also the anger. It's not just the egregious sins, it's also the really minor ones, the ones that you see as an inevitable part of being human. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity puts it this way. He says, one man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands, and another so placed that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. So that's the point. But we also need to make another point as well. This passage is not first and foremost about anger management. The words of Jesus here are not primarily directed at teaching us how to control or respond to our anger. It's true that Jesus condemns anger here, and he also gives us important teaching on how to deal with our anger, which we'll talk about. But what's really going on here, what Jesus is really showing us, is the line between righteousness and unrighteousness. What he's really saying here, using anger as the example, is that the line between righteousness and unrighteousness is not drawn where you think it is, that it's actually somewhere else, and that you're standing much closer to it than you realize. All sin may not be equal, but all sin renders you liable to judgment. So the line isn't drawn where you think it is. When we try to distinguish between who is righteous and who is unrighteous, who is living a good life and who is living an evil life, or to use Jesus' terms, who will face judgment and who will not, the line isn't actually placed where we assume that it is. So look at Jesus' words. He's stating an antithesis. Remember in Matthew 5, we're going to see six of these antithetical statements where Jesus is going to state the, the tradition, and then he's going to come back and give you a contrasting perspective. I say unto you this. So this is the first time we see him do it. Every antithesis will consist in two parts. There's going to be that first statement of what you've understood, and then that second statement of how you should actually think about this. So if you look at the first part of the antithesis, that actually has two parts as well. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And I'm going to do something here that I don't often do. I'm going to correct the translation in, in our Bibles. But I'm not correcting the wording. I'm just correcting the punctuation. So bear with me. There's a punctuation mark that in the ESV comes after the second phrase, whoever murders will be liable to judgment, close quotes. But other translations, I think with, with good reason, close the quote in the middle there. You shall not murder, close quote, because that's actually the sixth commandment that Jesus is quoting here. And what comes after is kind of uh, what we might think of as good and necessary consequence. It's a conclusion drawn from the commandment. So we have the statement of the sixth commandment, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't unjustly take a life. And then this statement, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And as I say, that's not a quotation from Scripture. You won't find a verse 
in Scripture that says exactly that, but it does sum up the traditional understanding that people had, and it's, it's an understanding that makes sense to us as well. Uh, it's summed up in the idea of the phrase, a life for a life, that a person who unjustly takes a life puts their own life in jeopardy. But that if you unjustly take away the life of another, then justly your life is forfeit. You are liable to judgment because of this terrible thing that you have done. That's the idea. That murder is so terrible that a person who commits murder puts their own life in jeopardy. And then the second half of the statement, Jesus states his, uh, this is the actual antithesis, the, the statement that it doesn't contradict, but it does expand on what went before. But I say to you, Jesus says, and here Jesus takes us from what you might think of as the, the outward act, murder, to the inward root, which is anger. And when he states his antithesis, he actually does it, again, in a kind of complicated way. He gives us three kinds of offenses, which are more or less synonymous. Everyone who is angry with his brother, whoever insults his brother, whoever says, you fool. Those are the offenses that Jesus is talking about. And each of those offenses renders you liable. When he talks about the liability, the liability kind of stair steps a little bit in severity. He says that those who are guilty of those things are liable to judgments, kind of a general consideration. Then he goes on, liable to the Sanhedrin or the council, as it's translated here. So liable to face the highest court in the land, the highest court of human justice, liable to that kind of judgment. And then liable to the Gehenna or the hell of fire. Gehenna, of course, is a place outside of Jerusalem, where they took out the trash. They went and burned the rubbish, the things that were sort of rejected were taken out and burned. But it had been the place in the old days of idolatry where sacrifices, human sacrifices, were made to the god Molech. So there's this twin association of a place of fire where, where what is discarded or rejected is destroyed and consumed, but also a place of idolatry where ungodly sacrifices are made in the name of worship. So that condemnation, that's divine condemnation. So these expressions of anger, which are more or less synonymous, like to be angry at your brother, to insult your brother, to call him a fool, these things, which all of us have done, render us liable to judgment, liable to the highest courts in the land. Jesus is saying, seems almost hyperbolically that, that somebody who does this, you get angry at your brother and they should take you before the Supreme Court and adjudicate that case. That would be right because of the, the, the gravity of what you've done. Worse, that you should be brought before the court of God himself to be judged. That that's the seriousness of what you've done. So what does all this mean? What is this antithesis actually saying to us? Well, first it's telling us to pay attention to where the line is actually drawn. Or the assumption of the tradition is that if I take a life unjustly, then my own life is forfeit. And if you're one of those clever people, you can probably figure out the positive statement there. If I don't take a life unjustly, then my life is secure. 
then my life is protected. It is mine by right. So long as I don't do this extreme act of unjustly taking a life, then my life is safe. That's the principle that Jesus is undermining here in his teaching. Because you don't have to literally take a life unjustly for your life to be forfeit, because the sin of anger is enough. The sin of anger is enough to condemn you. That's how serious it is. Being angry with your brother, insulting your brother, saying to your brother, you fool, makes you guilty and liable to death. As I said, Jesus isn't saying there's no difference between murder and anger. He's actually not necessarily saying that the the root of all murder is anger in the heart, and that if we could just get rid of anger in the heart, then there wouldn't be any more murder. Uh, There may be some truth, and that connection between like anger as an emotion and, and murder as an act. But that's not the, the primary point of what he's saying here. What he's saying is, if you think you can avoid condemnation by stopping short of killing, if you think it's possible for you to remain righteous so long as you never commit that ultimate act, then you are tragically mistaken. Because the feeling, the expression of anger itself is enough to condemn. Even the smallest sin, in other words, makes us liable to judgment. The smallest imperfection, the thing that we would turn a blind eye to, makes us liable. You can understand why teaching like this would make people feel uncomfortable. Because if you were listening to these words of Jesus and you were telling yourself you're a good person because you've never broken the sixth commandment, Jesus is saying, actually, you have. And if you were tempted to say, okay, sure, yes, I can see the connection between anger and murder. And I get that there's a sense in which being angry at people, like that rage lashing out, insulting them, maybe in some sort of therapeutic way, I'm taking life from them and, and all of that. But, but I mean, come on, that's, everybody does it. That's not, I'm still righteous. And Jesus is like, no, no. Like that stealing of life in the, in the most minor way is still an offense in the eyes of God. And so he urges a remedy upon us. Jesus once again gives us not only the the abstract teaching, but he tells us practically speaking what it means and what we ought to do about it. And actually most of our text is that application. He gives us kind of two scenarios and tells us what we should do in those situations, two applications, right? He gives us a reality check. Your anger will condemn you just as surely as murder will. And then he gives you two applications. He tells us, first of all, that the piety of an angry person doesn't cancel out the hypocrisy. So reconciliation has to come before worship. If you're in the church, you're about to make your sacrifice, you're about to do your pious thing, and you realize you have harbored this anger, there is this open grievance literally leave the sacrifice at the altar and go and reconcile, he says, and then come back. But it shows you the the gravity of what he's saying. For you to come into the church and to make this gift with an unclean heart is such a terrible thing that you should stop in your tracks and go be reconciled first and then come and make that gift. 
you may think that your anger is justified. But if you had your day in court, if it could only be adjudicated, this would be one of those instances where the judge would say, actually, you know, I'm angry with you. You're totally right and justified in your, your insults. Like that fool that you called out is a fool and you were right. Jesus warns you, don't be so quick to long for your day in court. Don't, don't rush to judgment. When your accuser comes, he says, you need to settle quickly. Otherwise, you may be handed over and put into prison. And when you're there, you will be forced to pay every penny. If you get your day in court, in other words, the judge may make you pay. So be quick to reconcile. Again, an urgency that pushes us towards reconciliation because the answer to anger is reconciliation. When the relationships are ruptured, Christ says that the answer is to repair them. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 4. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his brother, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So an urgency to seek reconciliation. But again, if you're really paying attention, you probably heard me read, be angry and sin not. And that implies it's possible to be angry and not to sin. So the question that you want to ask at this point is, given Paul's use of that phrase, he's quoting Psalm 4-4 there, isn't it possible to distinguish between just anger and unjust anger? Just as we can distinguish between just killing and unjust killing. And the answer, of course, is yes. There is such a thing as just anger. When God is described as angry, that is a just state for God to be in. He is rightly angry. That's why we talk sometimes about righteous indignation. So yes, we can make that distinction. However, in our case, there should always be a presumption in favor of our anger being unjust. Because if every time we experience anger, we pull out that distinction between just and unjust anger, you're going to find that when you are judging yourself, the category of just anger just seems to expand and expand and expand. It's so easy to let ourselves off the hook, to tell ourselves that the anger I feel is right, and it's different from the anger that condemns others. It's part of what Paul has in mind in his phrase, giving opportunity to the devil. When we justify ourselves in that way, when we create a space in our hearts for that unjust anger by justifying it, we give a foothold to the devil in our lives. This is how Calvin explains it. He says, it is scarcely possible, but that we shall sometimes give way to improper and sinful passion. So strong is the tendency of the human mind to what is evil. In other words, of course we're going to feel anger. We're sinful. Of course we're going to sin. But Paul gives a remedy that we shall quickly suppress our anger and not suffer it to gather strength by continuance, not to cherish wrath too long in our minds or allow it sufficient time to become strong. One of the pitfalls of anger, the misdirections of anger that he puts his finger on that fits really well with Jesus' teaching here, is that the anger that ought to be directed towards ourselves is directed towards others instead. 
where we should be angry at our own sin. Instead, we are angry at the faults of others. That anger has a pull. It has a power to it. I think the way that Jesus sees anger and talks about it stands in stark contrast to the way that we talk about anger now. Because oftentimes, like we recognize from a psychological or a therapeutic sense that anger is a bad emotion and you should be able to let go of that. But if you, if you Google, like, why are we so angry? And you get a bunch of psychology today responses to that. I'm not saying I did that, but I'm just saying hypothetically, if you were to do that, you would find that the, the problem's not anger anymore. The problem is the things that make us angry and those things need to change. So in a sense, anger is justified given the world that we live in. In fact, the problem may be that we're not angry enough. We're often told that if we're not angry, we're not paying attention. Yes, anger is a problem, but primarily it's the anger of other people that is the problem, and it'll only be solved when enough of us get angry and do something about it. We get this cycle of of anger, of rage, of, of insults towards one another, and you don't have to use a lot of imagination to see that happening in the world around you, not only to see it happening, but to see that none of us are innocent. That that cycle of insult and rage is not the particular property of one faction and not another, that all of us partake in it, all of us feel the pull of anger. It's not enough to be angry. We have to act on our anger, we're told. Don't get rid of it. Use that anger. That anger is like jet fuel for progress to actually do something about the problems of the world. But we could look at it a different way. We could say, yeah, we're meant to use the anger, but we're meant to use it differently than that. In a spiritual sense, our anger is something that we use to examine ourselves, to interrogate that anger, because the anger makes us liable to judgment. We want to understand it, we want to confess it, we want to get past it. Anger isn't used in Christianity to fuel action. It should be used to drive repentance. That where we find anger in our heart, it should lead us to turn towards Christ. When we find anger in the life of an unbeliever, the hope is that anger would lead them to turn to Jesus for the first time. The lives of believers, that anger should drive us towards sanctification, the fact that we continue to rage against our circumstances and against one another should lead us to see how great our need for Christ is. There's a sense in which you could answer that that mantra if you're not angry or not paying attention by saying if you're still just angry, maybe you haven't been paying attention long enough. And even the therapist will tell you that anger is an earlier sign and stage of, of grieving and that it should lead to eventually acceptance take some kind of a parallel there, I'm going to suggest that anger in the life of a believer should lead to sanctification, should lead to repentance, it should lead to growth. And the continued presence of anger suggests an absence of growth in Christ. Angry Christians are not growing in grace. We can go back to C.S. Lewis, he says it better, back to that passage in Mere Christianity where he talks about the two men differently placed, one whose anger massacres people, the other whose anger we just laugh at. He says, 
Each of the two angry men has done something to himself, which unless he repents will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage next time he is tempted. It will make rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the central man straightened out again. Each is, in the long run, doomed if he will not. The anger that we find in our hearts should drive us to repentance. So what should you do if you're still angry? You read Jesus' words here. It's hard not to conclude that that anger is bad, that you shouldn't feel that anger, that you shouldn't act on that anger, that you shouldn't be insulting people, you shouldn't be calling them fools. But if you're still struggling with that, if you're still angry, what are you meant to do? During the pandemic, one of the books we read in our discipleship groups was Edmund Clowney's book, How Jesus Transforms the Ten Commandments. One of the things that he does really well is show that when the Ten Commandments prohibit something, they also, by implication, command the opposite. So there's a negative thing that is prohibited, but then there's a positive thing that is commanded. So that when you look at the prohibition on murder... You also find within that an encouragement or a command to sanctify and to promote life, to guard life. If you read the Westminster Larger Catechism, you'll see that that catechism follows that same logic. So in each of the commands, it will ask, you know, what does this command prohibit? And also, what does this command command? What duties flow out of this command? And ultimately, from the sixth commandment flows a duty to life a duty to protect, to preserve life, to nurture life, not just by not killing, but also by by helping, by healing. And if we can think about promoting life in those big ways, using Jesus' example, we can also think of it in those smaller ways as well. If something as small as, as anger steals away at life, then something as simple as love builds it, contributes to it. Tiny sacrifices made for the sake of one another contributes to the life that we are called to advance. It's the way to preserve life, the life of others, and ultimately our own lives. It's not just to refrain from unjust killing. If we're going to seek out life and give life to our brothers, we have to root out our anger and replace it with love. It's not just don't be angry at your brother, it's love your brother. Love your brother is what Jesus calls us to. So if you're still angry and you look at Jesus' words, there are some remedies. First, be reconciled before you come to the altar. Be reconciled before you come to the altar. If you're sitting here in church and you're thinking about like the people who, who outrage you, that you're angry at, the people that you're raging against, and you're saying to yourself, well, at least I'm here. Where are they? You're who Jesus is talking to. If you're thinking to yourself that by being here, by singing the songs, by going through the motions, by enduring the sermon, by coming forward and participating, that somehow that makes up for the fact that you are consumed with anger, not only are you wrong about that, but you're doing the worst possible thing that you could do. Because you're taking all of the things that are meant to encourage you to turn and to repent, and you're using them to justify the absence of repentance. 
blinding yourself to the call of the gospel. Jesus says, prioritize reconciliation. Now, if you think Jesus is like, well, I'm just sort of flippant about religious observance. Jesus is like, I mean, go to church or don't. I don't really care. No, that's not how Jesus is. Like, Jesus wants you to be here. Jesus wants you to be doing these things wholeheartedly. But it is so important to be reconciled to your brother that Jesus says, hit the pause button on these essential things and go and take care of that first and then come back and fulfill your obligation. Then come back and worship me. Don't do it with an unclean heart. Don't do it with an unrepentant spirit. He also says, be quick to reconcile. Like if you just heard that and what you thought was, well, I guess it's going to be a while before I come back. Because if I need to get rid of all this anger before I can return to church, well, maybe I just won't be going to church. That's not what Jesus is saying either. Jesus isn't saying, look, take all the time you need. I know anger is tough to, to, to expunge. So if you don't want to come to church for a few years, just stay away. No. There's an urgency. Again, he's like, you need to take this seriously. You need to do it now. The metaphor of being brought to the judge is meant to show you, like, the, the time is not in your hands. You don't get to decide when the judgment is made. When you get taken to court, you're taken to court by your accuser, not because you've decided I'm willing to go. And you don't know when you're going to face the judge, he's saying, so you need to get it right now. Take care of it now. There's urgency to this. So be reconciled and be reconciled quickly. Take it seriously. Don't think this alienation. Don't think the, the, the anger towards the brother. Don't think the insults are bad, but not so bad that you need to take care of it now. Jesus is saying, now is the time. Be reconciled. Show love and do it immediately. Because the longer you put it off, the longer you live in search of death. But you've been called to seek life, so seek it and seek it now. In Jonah 4.4, the end of the book of Jonah, you get that wonderful, I say wonderful because it's so weird, moment where the prophet who's been sent to the pagan city to call them to repent or be destroyed sees that they repent probably the most successful prophetic mission ever. Back in Israel, the prophets are constantly saying the same thing, and the people of Israel are like, that's awesome, but I've got to go do some idolatry. I will gladly hear you later. But he goes to Nineveh, the epicenter of idolatry, and they actually listen to what he says, and they repent. And the most successful prophet of the Old Testament is angry at this result. He's bitter about it. Because God is showing mercy to people who don't deserve it. They're Gentiles, not Jews. This is not supposed to be their salvation. And he essentially sets his face against God. He opposes God. He's like, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you're a merciful God. I knew you were sending me out here for nothing. Because you're not going to destroy these people before my eyes. And in that moment of anger, God comes to Jonah and he confronts him. He says, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry at me for what I've done? In this passage, Jesus does the exact same thing, but he says it to us. Are you right to be angry? Are you telling yourself that your anger is justified, that it's okay, that it's even righteous and pious? Because if you are, you're in the same boat 
as Jonah, and Jesus is here to challenge you. And Jesus is in a good position to challenge you. Because Jesus wasn't liable to judgment. Jesus had done nothing to make himself liable to judgment, but he submitted himself to judgment anyway for your sake. The penalty of sin is death, but Jesus had no sin, and yet he made his life forfeit anyway so that you might live. He submitted to an unjust killing so that unjust people like you might have life. He was condemned in your place by the judge. He paid the last penny of the debt so that you might live without debt, free of your bondage to sin. Jesus can rightly look at our anger and our arguments for why we can't do without it and say, really? Look at me. Look at what I've done for you. And then tell me, are you right to be angry? For given what I have sacrificed for you, ought you instead to be filled with love? Love for your unworthy, unjust brothers. That's what Jesus calls us to. Jesus has given you life. Is it too much to ask that you be reconciled to one another? Not at all. For the sake of Christ, let your anger die within you. Let your insults evaporate on your tongue. Hate your sin and not your brother. Make that serious turn that C.S. Lewis talked about, the turn toward God. Have that twist in your heart straightened out. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.